as we're getting geared up here, if you have your copy of the Word of God, I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 18. We're going to be in Luke 18, verses 9 through 14 this morning. We'll be looking this morning at the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And as an outline for our time together. If you're taking notes and you'd like to write this down, feel free to do that. We're going to look first at the, the parable. We're going to consider the parable. We'll walk consecutively through the text of this parable and uh, discern some of the facets of this parable for the original audience. And then two, we're going to look at a theology to believe. We're going to discern what it, what it was exactly that God wanted to communicate to us in a timeless manner based on this parable. And we'll zero in on one particular aspect of this uh, timelessness and spend quite a bit of time uh, on point two. So if you, you feel like after we get through point one, we're about to slow down and um, uh, you're, we're about to end the sermon, uh, just know that that's not the case. We're going to spend a lot of time on point two, okay, so you know that. And then uh, three, we're uh, going to look at a call to continue to stand, what it was uh, that this, this parable is wanting to teach us. We're going to consider the implications of it and uh, what this passage would call us to do today by way of application. So that is the simple direction that we'll head this morning. Again, a parable to consider, a theology to believe, and a call to continue to stand. And I just want to, before we get into the text, if we could just bow our heads one more time, I'm just going to... Um, go to the Lord one more time briefly uh, in prayer, and then we'll get started. So let's bow our heads. Father, we do consider it a privilege to be gathered together as the body of Christ, and it is a wonder that you would uh, save us. It is a wonder that you would set your affection upon us from before the foundation of the world, and that you would make all of the necessary preparations for our sanctification. Uh, we gather together because Christ is central and he is to be the central point of this message. And I pray that he would be exalted and glorified. God, give us a few moments of uh, putting aside distractions and zeroing in our hearts upon what your word would teach us today. And as a result of that, cause us to stand on the truth of your word as your church. We ask this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Well, we begin with a parable to consider. As we approach the parable, we have an introduction by the author of the book of Luke, who is Luke. And Luke says in verse 9, he, Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Luke uh, sets the stage for us here. Identifying the particular recipients of this parable that Jesus is about to tell. 
And the ones being described here are those, as Luke said, who were trusting in themselves that they were righteous, i.e., those who were self-righteous. And this word uh, trusted means to be so convinced about something that one is willing to put their full confidence in it. So the people Jesus is primarily addressing in this parable are those who are so convinced about the righteousness of their own living uh, that they are fully confident in themselves. And their confidence in themselves is so great that they look at others around them and nobody else can measure up. Everyone else is beneath them. That's the one being addressed. By this parable, of course, it has application for everybody, but that is the primary audience that we're looking at here. Now we get to the parable. Jesus says, beginning in verse 10, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So the characters are given. We've got two men, and both of them are going to the same place, about to do the same thing. Both are going to the temple. Both of them are going to pray. And immediately, if you are the original hearers of this parable, people who live in or around Jerusalem, you know what's going on here. You've got this religious place, the temple, and a religious activity, prayer. Two men are about to go to this place and engage this activity. One man is highly religious, the Pharisee, the other highly irreligious, the tax collector. So automatically, you know whose game this is. This is the Pharisees. Um, I was trying to think about an analogy uh, for this in our day. Um, The best I could come up with is if I went to the basketball court to play basketball against Benjamin Averett, um, you would know whose game that was. Mine. I'm just joking. <laughs> Benjamin Averitt. Uh, that's how the people would have felt when they heard this parable. Oh, this is all day long the Pharisee's game. He's going to win this game, so to speak. Now, let's see what it is that Jesus says about these characters. The first character is the Pharisee. He says about him beginning in verse 11. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. So here we have a man, a Pharisee, who is standing by himself, and he utters a prayer to God that begins with, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Now, we read that and immediately there is a red flag, right? (laughs) Partly because we know that the New Testament casts the Pharisees in a negative light. And partly also because that's just not a really good way to start your prayer, right? Um, It sounds just a hair bit self-righteous. But we need to understand something. That way of praying was entirely normal in the Jewish context of that day. In the Jewish literature, a rabbinic teacher once said, a man is bound to say the following blessings daily. 
Blessed are you, God, who has not made me a heathen and who has not made me a brutish man. And this same expected prayer occurs in other places in the Jewish literature of the day and the days after that. You were supposed to thank God that you weren't like other sinners. So we've got here a man who's abiding by the religious norms of the day that would have gained him then some emotional buy-in with the original hearers of this parable. But not only this, here is a moral man. Uh, He doesn't rob from people, he doesn't do people wrong, and he doesn't betray his nation. So we might call in our day a good man, here is a model citizen, here is a man that we want on our city councils, this is the kind of person we want representing our country, give him a badge even, put him in front of the people, place him in responsibility, give him a platform. This man is a model citizen by all appearances. You know what else? He's religious. Not only is he moral, he's religious. Notice that he fasts twice a week. The Old Testament law said that you only needed to fast on the Day of Atonement. That's once a year. This Pharisee goes above and beyond in his practice of religion. He says, once a year won't do it for me. I must fast twice a week. That's the Pharisee. And what about his money? Uh, He probably went through financial peace a handful of times. Uh, Been there, done that, got the t-shirt. This man is probably a great manager of his finances, and he gives a tenth of everything he acquires. And that's not just the money he receives, it's everything that he acquires. Notice he said, I give tithes of all that I get. This Pharisee exceeds what the law requires. He must be very good with his money. So here is someone that the people of the day would have by and large applauded. The next character, not so much. Such a dark shadow was cast over a tax collector that upon hearing the designation tax collector, people in that society would fume. Klein Snodgrass, in his treatment of the parables, writes about what Judeans thought about tax collectors. He said, at least in Judea, Jewish tax collectors, and the tax collector in the parable is certainly Jewish, were considered traitors because they had contracted with the ruling powers to collect taxes and tolls. Or were underlings hired by such people to make the actual collections. Such people were notorious for dishonesty. And in the Mishnah are classified with murderers and robbers. People to whom one does not have to tell the truth. They were deprived of civic rights and were not allowed to be judges or witnesses in court. Think of... Benedict Arnold here. That's how these people were perceived among the hardworking, honest, red-blooded Jewish people. Now here's a short description of their job. Again, writes Snodgrass, Jewish tax collectors would bid for and purchase the right to collect taxes for a specific region. And various kinds of taxes were levied. Poll taxes, land taxes, toll charges on travel, 
and the transportation of goods from one region to another, sales taxes and inheritance taxes. Were tax collectors and tax, or so, sorry, toll collectors raised beyond their contracts was sheer profit. Now you throw in there the fact that tax collectors were crooks, and you can imagine how lucrative an operation was, tax collecting in that day. And of course, it was at the expense of the livelihood and the dignity of your fellow Jews, and that's why these people were the scum of society while the Pharisee was the cream of society. But here is the tax collector in Jesus' parable as he comes to the temple to pray, beginning in verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up, lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Tax collector comes to the temple to pray and he stands at a distance. He's so broken for his sins that he doesn't feel worthy to enter the presence of God. He can't even bring himself to look up to heaven and the pain of his guilt is so great that he is literally continually striking blows to his chest. The word for beat here is a Greek word that means to inflict a blow. Strike, beat, wound. It's the same word used to describe the Apostle Paul being struck in the mouth in the courtroom of Agrippa when he was on trial for teaching about the gospel hope of the resurrection. It's also used of Jesus. He was in custody by the Jews before his crucifixion as they were mocking him and beating him. However, we find only one other New Testament occurrence of the word in this construction to beat one's chest. It comes in Luke 23:48, same author, and it is used to describe the regret that the crowds had for watching the crucifixion of the innocent Lord Jesus. They beat their chests in remorse. So what we learn is that this is an expression of extreme lament. And the fact that it describes the tax collector shows how deeply repentant he is for his sins. This man is broken for his sins, and he comes before God, and in fear and in trembling, he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So that's the tax collector. Now, what was Jesus' judgment on these characters? He says, verse 14, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other, the Pharisee. In the final analysis, it is the tax collector who goes back home from his trip to the temple receiving the declaration from God that he is righteous. The Pharisee, on the other hand, receiving condemnation. You want it simple, the Pharisee's on his way to hell the tax collector's on his way to heaven. For the tax collector, it was simple, repentant faith that was the instrument through which he was justified before God. The story says nothing about his works. It doesn't go on to mention that the tax collector bore fruit in keeping with repentance after conversion. 
And the clear reason why those details are not given is because Jesus is merely interested in highlighting what biblical justification looks like at the moment of or in the circumstances that surround a person's conversion to Christ. To put it another way, Jesus' focus was on justification, not sanctification. Now, what should we infer from that? Should we assert that fruits of repentance or good works are not important after someone is justified? Um, It's almost as if Luke anticipated a question like that. And the reason I say that is because if you turn just one chapter over to chapter 19, you have the account of Zacchaeus. Now, we all know the story of the wee little man, right? Uh, Zacchaeus, who climbed up in the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. Um, And then the Savior passed by and he said, what? Yeah, for I'm coming to your house today. Yeah, y'all know the song. It's a good song. But I think that many of us forget, perhaps, what happened after that. Um, we know the story, but the last half of this, look at the rest of Zacchaeus' stories. By, by the way, do you remember what Zacchaeus' profession was? Tax collector. Interesting. Here's Zacchaeus, the tax collector's response to Jesus, coming to his house. Here we go. Verse 6, he says, So Zacchaeus hurried and came down and received him joyfully. We may say this joyful reception of Jesus is a sign of his conversion. Zacchaeus responded to Jesus' command and welcomed him into his home. And then in verse 7, some religious people began to complain that Jesus would have the audacity to go into a tax collector's home. This is a part and parcel of what we see with the religious people in the Gospels. But then in verse 8, we read about what conversion to Christ produced in the life of Zacchaeus. Notice, he says, verse 8, Behold, Lord. First off, observe the confession of Jesus' lordship. He called him Lord. Behold, Lord. And here it is. The half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Zacchaeus, the tax collector, was a man willing to make right what he had done wrong as a tax collector. He was a man who had repented of his sin, turned to Christ, and was willing to bear fruit in keeping with that repentance. So we've got this beautiful juxtaposition in two chapters in Luke. The tax collector in the parable in Luke 18 and the tax collector Zacchaeus in Luke 19. The response of the tax collector in the parable focuses on justification. The response of Zacchaeus focuses on sanctification. And I believe these two examples serve to protect us from separating justification and sanctification too sharply. Uh, John MacArthur cautions, do not separate justification and sanctification so radically that you allow for one without the other. This is the error of antinomianism. God will not justify those he does not sanctify. He does not offer justification as a standalone means of salvation. Election, regeneration, faith, justification, sanctification, and even glorification are all integral facets of God's saving 
And in a day in which we live where the teaching of easy believism, cheap grace is so prevalent, a warning such as this is necessary. Because someone might do, and I'm going to use Ben's analogy, he said this before, sometimes what easy believism, maybe not sometimes, but what they do is they take justification and they give it a place in a petri dish. And they let it just have a life of its own, disconnected from other doctrines of Scripture. We must not do that. Those who are justified will go on to be sanctified. Amen? Now, much more can be said about this, and um, you can talk to Pastor Ben afterwards. He'll help you out with that. There's one more thing that Jesus says about this parable. Um, After he said that the tax collector went home justified while the Pharisee didn't, he then grounded his assessment of these two men in a proverbial maxim. He said this, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. With this proverbial saying, Jesus was concluding that what the Pharisee did in the presence of God was exalt himself, while the tax collector, what he did in the presence of God was humble himself. The Pharisee stood up before God. The tax collector stood down before God. So you see, this is a parable about two characters and where they stood before God. But the parable is not just a unique story that Jesus told. He told this story because it is true to life in the spiritual realm. The spiritual reality is that every human being is like one or the other character. We are either like the Pharisee or we are like the tax collector. And so this is what this parable teaches all people who read it. Those who pridefully stand up before God with their own righteousness will be condemned. But those who humbly stand down before God, trusting in God's mercy, will be graciously justified. Amen? This is a theology to believe. And on the first part of this, anybody who comes to God and says, Hear God. Here's all the good things I've done. You owe me salvation. That person will find no comfort for his soul, only eternal judgment. And that was the Pharisee. He was trusting in his own righteousness, failing to recognize the sinner that he was. And we've already talked about this also. He was comparing his own righteousness against the sins of others. Diedrich Bonhoeffer was right when he said, if my sinfulness appears to me to be in any way smaller or less detestable in comparison with the sins of others, I am still not recognizing my sinfulness at all. That was the Pharisee. He did not recognize his own sinfulness in relationship to God. He was unwilling to submit to the reality that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, not the glory of man. Pharisee is like the Russian novelist Leo Tolstoy who wrote of himself, listen to this, I have not yet met a man, a single man, who was morally as good as I. I do not remember an instance in my life when I was not attracted to what is good and was not ready to sacrifice anything to it. I grew up in Texas. Uh, I learned the expression about getting downwind of yourself. You don't have to grow up in Texas to learn that, but that's just where I learned it. I think Tolstoy and the Pharisee just never got downwind of themselves. 
They never smelt the stench of their own self-righteousness. And therefore, they never saw the need for repentance and faith. That's the heart, the heart attitude of a prideful person who stands up instead of stands down in the presence of God. You know, alternatively, the one who recognizes his own sinfulness and trusts in God's mercy to save will be graciously justified. I think this is the timeless truth of the Bible. But the intent of the theology of this parable is that we do, um, we be compelled rather to get in line with the tax collector's response to God. And uh, to do that, we need to ask, what was it exactly that the tax collector did that resulted in his justification? Uh, How could he go home sealed with the promise that he was bound for heaven? Well, it wasn't that he pounded his chest. You know, people throughout the centuries have flagellated themselves to try to atone for their sins, but the wound and the stain of sin is too deep for one to bring upon themselves wounds in order to atone for their sins. It also wasn't that the tax collector looked down instead of looked up to heaven. It was neither this nor any other physical thing that he did that justified him. Rather, he went home justified because the humble attitude of his heart moved him to say what he said in his prayer. And that was this, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That was the true attitude of his heart. Now, just take the beginning and end of that prayer. God and me a sinner. God and the sinner. The tax collector knows who God is, and he knows who he is. The knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. He knows that God is holy, and he knows that he is not. James Boyce says this, To know God as the sovereign God of the universe is to know ourselves as his subjects in rebellion against him. To know God in his holiness is to know ourselves as sinners. To know him as love is to see ourselves as loved, though unlovely. To seek God's wisdom is to see our own foolishness in spiritual things. If you look throughout the Bible... You'll see scores of people who recognize their own sinfulness in the light of who God is. You will see in Scripture, even among those who have been saved, okay, a humble recognition that though they are saved and are God's children and are no longer who they once were, praise God, they are still finite creatures in the presence of an infinite creator. And on their lips is the consistent recognition that God is holy and they are less than holy. Uh, Think of Job. Though he was a righteous man, uh, there was a time during his testing when he was getting too demanding of God. So God had to put Job in his place. God uh, asked Job a slew of questions, chapters 38 through 41 of the book of Job. All meant to remind Job that he was creature and God is creator. Job, in the presence of these words from God, stood down and he said these words, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. And then later on he says, therefore I despise myself and repent 
in dust and ashes. What about Isaiah? Isaiah recounts in the sixth chapter of his book, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And in seeing the glory of the Lord, Isaiah was utterly undone. He cried out, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The prophet, think about this, though commissioned by God to speak his word, knew his own speech was not perfect. He had not lived up to the perfect standard of God's very words, and he was undone. The prophet Habakkuk, after showing him a God showing him a vision of himself was struck with dread. He said, I hear and my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Like Isaiah, Habakkuk was reduced to trembling in the presence of God. Now, uh, someone may say, well, that was the God of the Old Testament. Okay? Um, that doesn't happen in the New Testament. Well, let's look at Peter and John. <laughs> uh, in Luke 5, Peter got a glimpse of the glory of Jesus after Jesus performed this miracle of catching uh, a great fish or having the disciples catch a great fish. A miracle, by the way, that, that Peter was in doubt about. But, but Peter, he, he said this, look at this. But Peter saw the glory of Christ and he said, Depart from me, from a sinful man, O Lord. And then John in the book of Revelation recounts how he saw the risen Lord standing in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. And here was his response. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. You know, what all of this tells me is that any true encounter with a living God recognizes who he is and who we are. God is holy and we are sinful. And we must like the Pharisee did, stand down and be humble. Be humble. Now back to the parable. Humility was the tax collector's experience. And he said, God and me a sinner. But that's not all the tax collector said, right? Uh, in between the words God and me a sinner are these words. Be merciful. Be merciful. It's actually uh, one word in the Greek, heloskomai. It's a, a word that refers to the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. But we could just as easily translate uh, what the tax collector says here as God be mercy seated to me, a sinner. Um, or to paraphrase, treat me as one who stands before you on the basis of the blood shed on the mercy seat as an offering for sins. Now, um, what in the world does that mean? Well, under the Old Covenant, right, you had the sacrificial system based on the temple. And Moses was commanded to build a temple, and at the center of that temple was a room called what? The Holy of Holies. This was where the presence of God dwelt. And in that room was the Ark of the Covenant, right? A small box that housed the Ten Commandments. To cover this small box was the mercy seat. It was a lid that had two angels on either side with its wings coming, almost touching each other at the middle. And it was imagined that God dwelt in between these angels 
After all, the Ark of the Covenant was a pattern, a copy of what Moses saw when he was shown a vision of heaven. God dwells on his throne in heaven between the angels, and beneath him here on this earth are humans who have broken his Ten Commandments. So the ark was a reflection of this reality. You had God in between the angels above the lid of the ark of the covenant with the Ten Commandments below, the law that we sinful humans have broken. So it's not hard to imagine then God above and sinners below. But the problem is this. Something needs to come between God and sinners. Because when God looks down, all he sees is the law that we have broken. And his wrath is kindled against our sin. Something needs to come in between. It is for this reason that once a year on the Day of Atonement, an innocent lamb was slain and its blood was brought into the Holy of Holies and sprinkled on the mercy seat. And that blood represented the substitutionary sacrifice that came in between God and the sinner. So that when God looked down, he didn't see our sin, but the blood, and that blood satisfied his wrath against sinners. Isn't that beautiful? So what the tax collector is saying is that, God, let that blood sacrifice turn your wrath away from me, a sinner. Let the blood of that substitution come in between you and me. And by saying this, the tax collector was exercising faith in God's provision of a sin sacrifice. Now, the Bible teaches that those animal sacrifices were merely a shadow of things to come. While God's people were supposed to exercise faith in the sacrificial system, it was always meant to point beyond itself to some ultimate sacrifice. So the tax collector is exercising faith under the old covenant, but this parable was written with regard to the new covenant. So its significance is to be understood in the light of the fuller revelation of Jesus Christ. And the fuller revelation of Jesus Christ is found in Hebrews 2.17 where the author says that he, Jesus, made atonement for the sins of his people. And it was his very body his very blood that was shed for us that became the mercy seat for me and you so that those who demonstrate faith as the tax collector did and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. They turn their eyes toward Christ at the cross and they say, I believe that Christ paid for my sins. Then what comes between me and you and God is the blood that allows God to no longer be wrathful toward us, but to be favorable toward us and to love us and to forgive us. You know, this is justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. It's what Paul said in Romans 3, 23 and 24. He said, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We sinful humans can be justified before holy God by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Amen? And as a matter of fact, it was this doctrine that catapulted Protestant Reformation throughout the world. The Reformers discerned that justification through faith is central to the gospel so that without it you don't have salvation, 
uh, you don't have Christianity. You don't have Christian theology, and you don't even have the true church. Justification by faith, said Luther, is the chief article from which all other doctrines have flowed. It alone begets, nourishes, builds, preserves, and defends the church of God. And without, the, without it, the church cannot exist for one hour. When the article of justification has fallen, everything has fallen. John Calvin said that justification by faith is the hinge on which Christianity turns. And then the Puritan Thomas Watson, writing on the backs of the Reformer, said, Justification is the very hinge and pillar of Christianity. An error about justification is dangerous, like a defect in a foundation. Justification by Christ is a spring of the water of life. To have the poison of corrupt doctrine ease into the spring is damnable. Justification by faith alone is at the heart of our Christian faith. The parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector sets before us the timeless importance of justification by faith. And here's what I think it calls us to, brothers and sisters. To continue to humbly stand in the mercy of God demonstrated in the sacrificial death of Christ. Don't move an inch. Uh, you may be here this morning and you um, stood for Christ. You took a, a stand for Christ 50 years ago. Uh, or you may be here and you just took a stand for Christ last year. Response is the same. Don't move. Continue to stand on Christ. You know, this is a gospel that we have believed is a gospel that we continue to stand on, right? The Apostle Paul said, Therefore, since we have been justified, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. The gospel is truth we continue to stand on all our days. And as we stand, let's remember to do so with humility. The posture of our souls at justification is to be the posture of our souls in sanctification. We began the Christian life in humility. We must continue the Christian life in humility. Amen. Let's humbly stand on Christ. Let's pray.